This season on the Academy Museum Podcast, we've been taking you on a journey through the history of casting. We've looked at the classic Hollywood studio system, trailblazing casting directors at the profession's inception, typecasting and casting unknowns, voice actors, and beloved characters. In our season finale, we're wrapping all these concepts up together and looking at what goes into casting an ensemble. A good ensemble cast is like a puzzle. Multiple pieces, in this case actors, are coming together to each serve a crucial role in telling a larger story. The definition of an ensemble can feel a bit vague. The term is used to cover everything from the cast of a film like Love Actually, where multiple characters are at the center of their own intertwined vignettes, to Life Aquatic, where a singular protagonist is surrounded by other principal characters who have meaty plots of their own. The combination of multiple moving parts in an ensemble can prove tricky. You've heard from veteran casting director Kim Taylor Coleman earlier this season. She says that the key to casting an ensemble film is chemistry and cohesion. One person can sort of shift the tide. So it's it's about chemistry and making sure you put the, the small pieces of the puzzle that they all fit and they, they're all in sync. Our guest for this episode has years of experience in that world. Sarah Hallie Finn is a casting director with over 100 feature film credits. It's likely she's cast one of your favorite films. She's won the Casting Society of America's most prestigious award, the Ardios Award, six times. So the Casting Society of America's awards, as you know, are called the Ardios Awards, which means perfectly fitted. And I'm curious about like your reflections on that concept, especially for an ensemble film. How do you think about fitting the pieces together? I think it's a beautiful concept. And I think that we're trying to create one cohesive whole, right? We're focused on each character, each role. We're thinking constantly about our directors and what they're hoping for, hoping to achieve. But while we're casting those roles and hoping we have the perfect fit, I think there's also some intangibles, right? There's, there's, there's the chemistry between and among these actors. And, and hopefully what we achieve is actually a kind of alchemy that once these actors are starting to live as their characters and breathe and interact and grow, there is a bit of magic that happens. And you know what, when it's wrong, it's jarring. (laughs) I think that when an ensemble isn't really seamless, unfortunately, those cracks peek through and, and you feel it. In the first decade of her career, she cast films like Varsity Blues, Mission Impossible 2, Blue Crush, She's the Man, The Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift, and Academy Award winner, Crash. I think we miss that touch so much that we crash into each other just so we can feel something. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. These ways are for the big boys. What, you think you can suffer for real? I dated Juju. I guess I can do anything. On the wrong side of the law, a new style of racing rules the Tokyo underground. Sarah has also cast every film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) 
and she cast the film that has been acclaimed as the most awarded movie in history, Everything Everywhere All at Once. The universe he speaks of senseless things. is so much bigger than you realize. We'll hop into our conversation with Sarah Halley Finn and her experience casting some of the biggest ensembles in film history right after the break. Hello, I am Sarah Halley Finn and I'm a casting director. Lovely to talk with you, Sarah. And maybe we could start off by hearing you talk about how you got started in casting. I got into casting pretty literally from theater. I started out in theater. I had studied and trained and I was working in off-Broadway spaces and I was assistant directing Risa Bremen Garcia, who at the time was a director and casting director. I was always running off to do temp jobs and day jobs to pay my rent and <laughs> put food on the table. And one day she turned to me and she said, what are you doing running off to all these jobs? Come cast this movie with me. And that's literally how it started. I, I came in having worked with actors and worked with directors and producers from a theater point of view, but never having done it in film. Without ever really planning on becoming a casting director, I took to it sort of like a duck to water. I loved everything about it. And I looked up three years later and <laughs> I guess I was a casting director. Are there some early projects that you feel especially proud of? It's always fun to kind of think back on that period when I got hired at Paramount. One of the first movies that I was asked to cast was 200 Cigarettes, which was Reese's first film as a director. 200 Cigarettes was an ensemble comedy from 1999. The film follows several different characters and their plot arcs on New Year's Eve in New York City. You'll recognize some of these names. 200 Cigarettes starred Ben and Casey Affleck. Kate Hudson, Dave Chappelle, Janine Garofalo, Paul Rudd, Christina Ricci, and more. Nobody's coming. That's it. I have no friends and everybody hates me. It's only nine o'clock. He's gotta be depressed working on New Year's Eve. You know what, I'm gonna invite him to this party. Everyone's depressed on New Year's Eve. Kevin, only you are depressed on New Year's Eve. You've gotta say yes to your destiny. I do? Yeah. Life's happening right now, baby. Look around you. Look around you. So there was incredible organic synchronicity that happened being able to do that. So that project has a special place in my heart, and I love that it's kind of achieved this cult status. Crash was certainly the first ensemble film that I did that I feel like broke through, and that certainly helped me as a casting director in my career. Wow. Wow. So, Sarah, how would you describe your casting philosophy? Like, what's the approach that you take when you're starting a project? That's a great question. I think really the starting point for me is always the director's vision, really trying to understand and absorb what the dream is, what the vision is for the film, what the hopes are, what the challenges are, what the landscape is. So that's always my touchstone and my starting point are those early conversations with the director about what they're hoping to achieve. And then I get excited thinking about, okay, how can I elevate that? How can I bring something exciting, fresh, unexpected? 
but really every project is unique. That's one of the amazing things about our job is there never are two projects that are identical. Each director's vision is going to be unique and our process is going to be dictated by that story and the needs of that project. So when you're approaching actors or auditioning actors, what is, how do you create the environment to make them comfortable? What are the ways that you interact with actors when you're starting to think about possibilities for a role? I, I try to be uh, as open-minded as possible, right? So when we're starting out, we're getting, um, I guess I'll just speak for myself, all the information that I can absorb, right? From the directors, from the producers, um, from other design departments, right? Let's sort of start building the world. I'll put up images and try to immerse myself in that world. And then uh, obviously research. We're going to research widely. We're going to think creatively. And then we're going to kind of roll up our sleeves and get into the process. I think coming from that black box theater environment has been invaluable as a casting director because that's kind of how I approach every day. If an actor comes into the room, I want to make sure they're comfortable. <laughs> we might just shake out the nerves. Uh, I will encourage jumping jacks or push-ups or whatever anybody wants to do just to shake nerves out and let the creative juices start flowing. I miss being in the room. I think that that's something that's changed. And so we've had to evolve our process, but it's coming back. Uh, it's coming back. We're starting to get back into the room with actors. And I think everyone is breathing a sigh of relief about that. So I wanted to ask you in this world of Zoom auditioning, how do you handle that for ensembles? I mean, how do you do the kinds of chemistry? Oh, it's so, it's so, so awkward, but (laughs) we do it because we have to, because we want it to work and we want to give everybody the opportunity. And during the pandemic, we didn't have options. And sometimes now, just because of people's lives, it's the way something has to happen. I have the most amazing team. I know everyone does, but I honestly really do. And they will spend time with each actor, making sure they know how to pin and making sure they know where to look and make sure they know how to, you know, put the camera and making sure they're able to move if they want to, and we can see them. So I think that we'll do our best to make everyone feel comfortable and do our best to allow the actors to forget that they're looking at a computer and forget that people are watching and prep and do these technical run-throughs so that they can try to just key into one another. One of the things that I've been asking casting directors for this season is how you know that someone is right for a role. Like, what is it? Is it a feeling? Is it intellectual, emotional? But for you, Sarah, like, what happens when you have, you know, listened to many people read these lines, talk about a character, what are the things that really make you know that this is the person for this role? I think it is very emotional for me. <laughs> it, it's visceral. And that's something that I think as a woman and a professional, I used to try to cover. I would have be able to articulate, hopefully intelligently, all the reasons why this was the right performer. And I would have done so much research. One of the things that I've really leaned on and developed is is the sense of no stone unturned. We are going to be thorough. When we arrive at a decision, when I say this is the person I'm going to fight for, it's because I put in the work 
and I know, and I've, you know, read enough people and done enough work to know, but ultimately it's a feeling. Ultimately it becomes clear. It's, it's, uh, you know, we call it a eureka moment. I guess the best way I could describe it is I forget that I'm working. I forget that I'm watching a scene. I forget that I'm watching an audition. I know that I'm in the presence of this character coming to life. Beautiful, beautifully put. So let's talk about casting Marvel films. If you could take us back to the casting of Iron Man. Iron Man, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. This it's a gold titanium alloy, but it's kind of evocative, the imagery anyway. Iron Man came out in 2008. It was the first film of what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's hard to remember that, at the time, Iron Man wasn't a comic book character with the same household name recognition as Batman or Superman. And as reviews at the time pointed out, the public hadn't seen Robert Downey Jr. in a major role in years. After dealing with addiction issues and a series of well-publicized arrests and rehab stays in the late 90s and early 2000s, a now sober Downey Jr. returned to Hollywood. And in 2008, he led a blockbuster film whose success changed the industry as we know it. Iron Man became a centerpiece of the MCU and cemented Downey Jr. as a movie star. It's impossible to picture anyone else in the role. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I've made, largely public. Truth is, I am Iron Man. Tell us how you came to that project and what the casting process was like. I came to that project through, I basically auditioned for the job with my partner then, Randy Hiller. I had met Louis D'Esposito, who is <laughs> head of Marvel with Kevin Feige. I had met him on a previous film called SWAT. And he brought us in to interview for the job. And uh, I was a fan. I will admit, I'm a bit of a, a nerd. And honestly, I had no idea where it was all going. So there wasn't this big sense of, would you like to come in and, and cast this, you know, emerging, burgeoning franchise uh, that's going to go for the no next idea. No, no idea. So that took a lot of the pressure off. And then it was just sort of this great challenge of who is this character? How do we bring him to life? And then as the scale of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe became more and more clear, just how big this was, did that have any impact on your approach to casting for those films? I think the answer is no, <laughs> because uh, it's yes and no. I'm always focused on the task at hand. Who is the character? What is their role in this story? And who is the best possible actor to play this role? That's always kind of the focus. So it's very specific. And it's not often that I step back and try to understand the whole world. However, I will say that after Avengers came out and we could see the success of that movie, and I began to realize for the first time the potential for these characters to interact with one another, I would say that I was aware of that, aware that any character could potentially be on screen with another character and have a kind of curiosity about whether there would be connective tissue. 
in the universe between these actors, could they have banter? Would they get along? Would they, would they meet each other with equal weight and presence on screen? Is there a particular Marvel project that you found the most exciting to cast? Or the most challenging to cast? <laughs> most challenging. Uh, all of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say a few stand out. Uh, the moment when we started Black Panther was a very exciting moment. I think it was a turning point in the MCU. Kevin had kind of taken over creatively, and we were finally able to make this movie that I think there had been a, a desire to make. Meeting Ryan Coogler completely blew me away. My king. Stop it. The Black Panther lives. It was really uh, an exciting moment and a whole new story to tell. And for me, because I had known Chadwick a long time, I still obviously can't even talk about this, because I had known him for a long time and, and being able to help, you know, in, in that pathway for him to get that role was really special. Now present to you King T'Challa. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So as you know, we're focused on the process of casting ensembles for this episode. And you touched on this a little bit already, but maybe you could say a little bit more about it, about the process of putting together the Avengers and what the casting for those roles was like, as opposed to a film like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is an ensemble from the start. You have to sort of anticipate, as you were saying, how these actors might interact with each other. How did you, how did you do that calculus sort of in your mind <laughs> as you were well, casting these multiple films? Honestly, I was kind of lucky uh, with the Avengers because I didn't really realize that this was the plan that Kevin had. I thought I was casting Captain America and then I thought I was casting Thor and I knew I had cast Iron Man. So that all honestly took me a bit by surprise that this was now the the film. Uh, so I got lucky. I was able to really cast one movie at a time and then have this ensemble after the Avengers and going on towards Endgame. And again, I have to stop for a minute and reflect at how lucky I am. And it's something that I don't take for granted that I have been able to be the casting director since Iron Man. That's not a privilege that we often have. Again, I don't take it for granted, but to have that kind of continuity is so fun. It's so satisfying and fulfilling and exciting to, you know, to be able to look back and look ahead. So after the Avengers, I realized, okay, I get what's going on here. <laughs> I see what you're doing. I understand what we're creating here. And I think Guardians was one of the early movies that we did. And so casting for Star-Lord, I was well aware at that point. How is this actor going to play opposite Thor and opposite these other characters? What kind of an ensemble can we build? And I hope and strive for each time to continue to make it different and fresh. And Guardians was such a wacky group and such a fun group to cast. And frankly, such a challenge when I went into the first meeting and I found out that three of my five leads were a raccoon and <laughs> a tree and <laughs> a green, <laughs> right? you know, on and on and on. We all know what happened there. I've had a lot of folks try to kill me over the years. I ain't about to be brought down by a tree and a talking raccoon. Old. What's a raccoon? What's a raccoon? It's what you are, stupid. Ain't no thing like me except me. 
maybe Vin Diesel does want to play Groot. He was great in Iron Giant. Let's try that. Let's let's have some fun and, and shoot for the stars. And so each time I think we try to change it up as much as we can. But like I said, I'm looking for that connective tissue, the kind of actor that has the passion to play the part and has the training and the skill and the craft to hold their own. And hopefully that kind of wink in the eye that we all know we're making believe. Yes. We're telling stories. Yeah. I'm curious about whether you ever had to, you thought someone would be perfect for a role in the MCU, but maybe they thought I'm, I'm not an action person. I'm not a whatever genre film person or something, especially early on in the process. Did you ever find yourself having to sort of convince someone that this is actually something meaningful? Yeah, literally Chris Pratt in Guardians of the Galaxy. He did not see himself in the park. He passed multiple times. He would not come in and audition for it. And we were seeing other people and I kept going through the process. And I finally convinced him to come in, at which point James Gunn said, that guy, <laughs> he's totally wrong. I don't want to see him. <laughs> but it all worked out. Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. We'll be right back with Sarah and the casting of Everything Everywhere All at Once right after this. We're back in conversation with casting director Sarah Halley Finn. So let's talk about Everything Everywhere All at Once. Everything Everywhere All at Once is the intergenerational multiverse movie that swept the 2023 Oscars. The film uses surreal absurdity and comic book concepts to tell the story of an immigrant mother and her daughter struggling to find a world where they can understand each other. There is no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. Sarah first read the script in 2018 and was brought onto the project through Marvel directors, the Russo brothers. They connected her with the project's directing duo, the Daniels, and the casting collaboration started shortly thereafter. So tell us about how it came together, how you started talking about possibilities for the roles for that film and how you sort of built out the ensemble. There's something that kind of takes flight in the imaginations and in the world. And I think that's the most powerful aspect of an ensemble cast is when these sparks start to fly and when something starts to be created that you couldn't have imagined, even if you tried. And I think that's what happened in this movie. It's a rare and precious and beautiful thing. And I think that, that we felt it during the process. I think that Daniels cultivated it in this incredibly wild and imaginative environment they had on set. They encouraged everyone to be risk-taking all through the audition process and all through the film. And I think that it, it luckily for all of us, it, it connected, it succeeded. There was a big evolution, and I know they've spoken about it. Originally, the lead role, Michelle's role, was written male. And it wasn't exactly clicking into place. We weren't finding the perfect fit. And they went away, and, and <laughs> Dan said, I have an idea. I'm going to go back and rewrite some things. I'm going to think about this. And, and came back with... Uh, 
a version of the script that was meant to go to Michelle Yeoh. So just that was uh, perfectly fitted. We can leave it there. Perfectly fitted, thrilled that she came on board, and the rest is history. And the Oscar goes to Michelle Yeoh. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, <laughs> this is a beacon of hope and possibilities. This is proof that dreams dream big and dreams do come true. Then the rest of the cast was honestly just mayhem and fun. Mayhem and fun. And we were looking at so many of these characters for, from two angles, right? It's not just Waymond, it's Alpha Waymond. So, so the casting process involved a lot of reflection and looking at things from different angles. Are we going to lean into the alpha part or do we have an actor who's organically more one or the other? Are they equally both? We even looked at male versions of the daughter as well as female as, as many directions as the movie was going in. <laughs> I think we were looking at a lot of different, different directions, even in the casting process. Wow. And, you know, one of the things, obviously, that's so striking about the film is that we have associations with some of the actors for other projects that they've been in. And so it seems to me that part of the alchemy that, that you were just describing is knowing that Jamie Lee Curtis, that Kiwi Kwan could move into roles like these that have some unexpected qualities. And the Oscar goes to... Jamie Lee Curtis! And the Oscar goes to... That really stretched them as actors. And I'm curious about like what those kinds of conversations are like or in your thought process, but also when you're talking to these actors about <laughs> the possibilities of roles like these, you know? It's fun to talk about. And I think, honestly, again, they helped create the environment in the audition room. You know, so Key coming in, having not auditioned for decades, right, was able to, I think, come in and relax and realize, you know, that he could play. I'm very lucky that I have an assistant who's fluent in Mandarin and Cantonese, who could read, who could make it comfortable. And, and it was all just a big playground, I think, to work things out and, and try different things and feel safe in taking risks. And I think Stephanie Sue, who, again, this is kind of mind-blowing to think that it's her one of her first films, if not her first, that she came out with an Academy Award nomination. Coming from the theater, having this adventurous spirit and curiosity and willingness to play and take risks um, was everything. I'm so glad you mentioned Stephanie Shu because her audition tape went viral on yeah. Twitter, you know, after Daniel <laughs> Kwan posted it. And one of the things that really inspires this podcast is that we have audition tapes and screen tests on display at the museum, and they're incredibly popular. I would love to hear your thoughts about like why you think people are so drawn to audition footage. Like why is that something that's so captivating to people in your view? I think that when we do our job really well, it's almost like we're invisible, right? It's almost like we leave no trace. There's no sign <laughs> that we were even there. That person just magically fell from the sky and is that Part. And the audience is swept up in the story. And, and there's, there's a beauty in that, 
And ironically, I, I wonder if that's part of the reason why there's no Oscar for casting directors, because it's like when we're really, really good, I think you forget. <laughs> you it just forget feels natural, right? It just feels natural. Somehow. It was always meant to be. So the fact that the Academy Museum has this room where you open, you peel back the curtain and you're shining a light is so fun and exciting to see. And I think that um, the more people are aware of how it's done, everything that goes into finally arriving at the perfect choice, I think there will be a better understanding and appreciation of what the craft of casting really is. You could see that even in the very first days of Stephanie connecting with this character, she had such a strong idea. Can you sing Sucked Into the Bagel? Sucked into the bagel. Sucked into the bagel. She had such a strong um, grasp on who she could be, and it was hers. Like that, that Jobu Joy was hers, and and so I think that it's really powerful to see. Yes, she grew in that performance. Yes, that Daniels pulled out so much more, and it was richer and bigger and deeper, and all of those things. But I think you see that kernel of truth, of the truth of her connection with that character, of the truth of her inspiration and her imagination and the ways that she was going to explore it. Nothing matters. Oh, Joy. You don't believe that? Feels nice, doesn't it? If nothing matters, and all the pain and guilt you feel for making nothing of your life goes away. Sucked into a bagel. Because I'm in the same audition room <laughs> with an actor doing the same thing <laughs> in every reading, whether it's for a $2 million movie or a $100 million movie, we're going to work together. We're going to work together. We're going to figure this out. I'm going to hopefully help you take flight and, and do the work you came here to do today. It's a very collaborative process. And so I think at the heart of it, it's a creative collaborative process, no matter what the budget is. Do you see casting as um, an underappreciated discipline? I do. I do. I hope that that will start to change because I think that we are an eccentric, passionate, dedicated, <laughs> and talented group of people. And I think our work deserves to be recognized alongside all the other collaborators. That is it for this season of the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting. Thanks so much for listening and coming on this journey with us. And a big thank you to all of our guests from this season for sharing their stories and perspectives. 
I hope this season gives you insight into the fundamental role that casting directors play in the making of our favorite films and the care, imagination, and intuition they bring to open up opportunities and unexpected possibilities on screen. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. The Academy Museum Podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the Vice President of Podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the Executive Producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias Director of Content Development. This episode was produced and edited by Victoria Alejandro. Our other producer is Monica Bushman. Antonia Sarahito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. And to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of LAS Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.